Hi and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Fritz. And I'm Serena Chen. Today we'll be talking about medicine and healthcare. So I need to start this by saying that neither of us are doctors. Nothing that we're going to say on this episode is actual health advice, unless it's something like get a pap smear because you know you should and you know you're overdue for one. Um, And so really take a lot of what we say here with a grain of salt. Like, I don't want you to listen to this and then go off and think you know everything about women's health because we don't. And don't, don't get us sued, basically. Um, so today we're sort of going to be talking about uh, healthcare, the history of health with the sort of intersection of feminism throughout that history of health. Um, and just generally ideas around it. It's also a very special episode because we are live in Wellington. Together, we're in the same room. <laughs> it's very weird. I can see your face. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. Oh, we're going to have to do so much toning down of our active listening. <laughs> um, so we're glad that you're with us for this exciting episode that may have some wild audio quality. We'll see. Serena might cut that bit out. Um, <laughs> Uh, so let's get started off with Serena. When was the last time you had a pap smear? May last year. That's really good. Thank you. Um, I go to the local family planning clinic. Nice. And they are absolutely fantastic. They're great. I get my pull prescriptions from them and I get my pap smears from them and yeah, they're fantastic. Oh, cool. And I presume it all went great and you were like, this was uncomfortable, but I'll see you in three years. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> essentially. Um, so pap smears are smears of cervical cells um, in which the cells from, like they take a swab of cells from your cervix and check them for any abnormalities. There is a new type of pap smear that's coming in that will check for the actual DNA of the HPV virus. So if you got the HPV vaccine, mm-hmm. um, it stands for human papillomavirus and I had a minor in microbiology, so I had, like, at least one lecture about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that particular virus can cause genital warts. It can also cause cervical cancer. I think it's absolutely fascinating how it does it, but I won't go into it here because I think maybe not everyone thinks it's fascinating how that happens. You can tell me later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we're watching Outrageous Fortune later. Yeah. Um, but basically, if a test can just test for viral DNA, um, those pap smears will only need to be done about once every five years. I was just outside of the age range that they were aiming for when I got my last pap smear done, which was in July last year. Mm-hmm. I had left it for about six years between them, which is bad. <laughs> That's interesting, because um, when I go to a family planning, they tell me to get it done every year. So they, they book me in for the next okay. year. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yearly. I- my every doctor I've kind of spoken to has just been like every three years is fine. Interesting. Okay. Like I think it's just um it's probably quite good when you're a bit younger. So cervical cancer is, I think the highest um, occurrence rate is in sort of young adults, so mid twenties to mid thirties, if I'm recalling rightly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's probably quite good to have it more often than not. I hate it. Yeah, it's not comfortable. Um, but, I mean, it's a medical procedure, and most medical procedures aren't that comfortable. So Yeah, I you know, like a lot of letters from my different medical healthcare facilities before eventually I was like, oh, I have to like... <laughs> so I have a marina as well, which I think I've talked about on previous mm-hmm. episodes, which is an intrauterine device. And about once a year I need to get that checked, and the last time I went in I was like, please do a pap smear. Mm-hmm. And my doctor was very chatty and was like, oh, when's the last time you had one done? I was like, six years ago. And he's like, that's not very good. And I'm like, no, I know. But you're also going to like, just, it's like a medical dildo. And they just yeah. like crank you open. And it's yeah. like, oh, oh, I'm being consciously very calm about this. But oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> just a lot of deep breathing. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's pap smears. Um, if you're also... If you're sexually active or for any other reason sort of at risk of STIs, when you're getting a pap smear done is also a really good time to get your STIs checked. Um, As the doctor I went to for my pap smear said, I'm up there anyway. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I liked him, but I'm not going to see him again. (laughs) Bit too jovial. (laughs) Um, I mean, like... I did have to confess to him that I hadn't been sexually active over the past year, and I don't think I can live that shame down with, like, another doctor. (laughs) I just switch doctors until I run out and then go to a new clinic is probably the best plan there. Um, But, yeah, pap smear is very important. 
very good part of your health. Uh, probably up there with like mammograms once you get over a certain age. Mammograms are important for people who are older than us. Yes. Like, that's kind of it. Um, my homeroom teacher, when she had one while I was at high school, described it as you put your boob in a giant magnet mm -hmm. and they squish it and then they tell you that there's no cancer. And you're like, oh, good, thanks. <laughs> um, Take the boob back. <laughs> yeah, just, like, draw it back in from where they've stretched it out. Um, if you've got a family history of breast cancer, of course, like, always get checked, please. Mm -hmm. um, but I also trust all of our listeners to be looking after their own health in a really good way. Um, I believe in all of you. You're all good people. Um, so that's, mm -hmm. like, the very basics of stuff that's generally thought of as quote-unquote women's health, mm. which is a very weirdly charged term. And, like, I've certainly read some... Interesting things from um, trans men who have had either like cervical problems or um, mammogram issues, like if they're pre-mastectomy or if they've chosen not to have surgery, uh, and they have the really weird experience. Whereas trans men, they have to go to a women's health center. And it's yeah. like, well, this is weird. It's not. I'm not a woman. Hello, everyone. A... Um, I think though, when talking, so pap smears, cervixes, and cervical cancer. So pap smear, it's a check for cervical cancer. Very, very good. No one wants cancer. Mm -hmm. New Zealand actually has, like, a really interesting part of history in this, and that's um, to do the this sort of trial and intervention surrounding that is known as a Cartwright Inquiry. Um, so do you know anything about the Cartwright Inquiry? I don't know anything about the Cartwright Inquiry. I know that we get um, HPV vaccines at high school. Um, I know that it was quite widely publicised. That's about it. I don't know why. And so, where it came um, from. the Cartwright Inquiry is actually nothing to do with the HPV vaccine. Okay. Um, it's something that occurred in the late 80s, uh, and it came as a result because it transpired that a professor who was a um, OBGYN, so obstetrician and gynaecologist, um, it's generally referred to as the unfortunate experiment um, in writing as well. And it's essentially that this particular professor, uh, when he was at Auckland, so he was at a hospital in Auckland, the National Women's Hospital, um, and he was particularly an expert in um, cervical cancer. And the unfortunate experiment was that he was not treating women who had invasive cervical cancer and following and monitoring without their knowledge or consent. And he wasn't telling them that they had cervical cancer. Oh my and God. he was just seeing what happened. New Zealand! <laughs> Unfortunate <laughs> is a way to put it. Uh, wow. Yeah, so it's called the Cartwright Inquiry because at the, um, at the time, District Court Judge Sylvia Cartwright, mm -hmm. who I believe was a Governor General at some point, I don't know enough about New Zealand politics. Serena's shrugging. It's very <laughs> unhelpful. Um, she did the inquiry, but the um, professor who sort of did these experiments, like, he just wanted to see what would happen. And how did people find out that he was doing this, if he didn't tell anyone? I mean, presumably, like, someone died. <laughs> like... Mm -hmm. When you have cancer to, like, a particular um, degree, it generally becomes obvious, like, even if you sort of haven't been told that. Um, over 30 women died, like, kind of as a result of this, according to an article in the New Zealand Medical Journal, although, like, um, the numbers for that uh, vary a little bit. Uh, and when the Cartwright Inquiry was going on, the professor, because he was so old... Um, I think he was 74 when that occurred. Like, he was decided not to be, like, mentally or physically stable enough to be going before the judges. So really, while he was discredited and, like, will forever be remembered as the guy that, like... Killed people. Yeah. Didn't, didn't tell women they had cervical cancer and then just, like, figured out what happened because, you know, what are humans except playthings for doctors? It's a very dark part of New Zealand medical history and like New Zealand doesn't have a lot of medical history that belongs specifically to it like 
we're a small country, we do something, sometimes we trial stuff that works really well. I think the men's B vaccine was a beautiful example of like preventing an epidemic from happening. But this is something that needs to be like remembered as part of our history and like particularly that this professor was like a proponent of pap smears mm. like he was an early adopter like a guy who very quickly was just like yep pap smears are good mm-hmm. but then was like but i'm not going to treat these women and i'm going to like do this experiment on them and see what occurs and it's like it didn't even give us that much more information on the progression of cervical cancer like right. it's like not like if it had it would have been permissible no. But it's kind of like a double whammy. Yeah. And that wouldn't work because you're just waiting. You've got too small a sample size. Nothing is... You don't know if anything is controlled. It did, did any kind of legislation come out of that whole ordeal? Um, I believe that there was a, like, a huge increase in ethics oversight. Mm. Um, and so, like sort of his reasoning for having done it was he was really concerned that like infertility might result from surgery like there was over prescribing of medications like yeah, yeah sure and like it's really weird reading about it because a lot of the language that he's quoted as using like talking about over prescribing of medications and all of that is actually really similar to the kind of stuff that you still hear in medicine today where people mm-hmm. are like oh medicine's over prescribed oh this is all bad like mm-hmm. you shouldn't just have these surgeries, what if you end up unable to have babies, blah, 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 we don't know anything about cell phones, etc. Um, <laughs> and so, like, from his point of view, he was doing something, presumably he was doing something quite morally correct. Like, he thought that by doing surgery, by over-treating women who had invasive cervical cancer, like, that he would be harming them in a way that, like, would be unacceptable. Well, that's interesting, because it just speaks to the fact that society sees women as uh, essentially wombs. Like, our, our fertility to so many is uh, our only reason of being, our only worth. And that is a very clear example in which someone said, for the good of these women, like, if, uh, if they were not able to reproduce, then, like, that's something horrendous taken away from them. Ignoring the fact that taking away their lives is... Uh, even more horrendous. Well, it's wombs and sex appeal because, um, as I'm sure you're aware, a lot of the discourse around things like breast cancer is like, save the boobs. Oh, yes. like, or save the woman attached to the boobs. Yeah. <laughs> but boobs. <laughs> it's such sure. a tragedy that Angelina Jolie might have her tits cut off. It's like... I mean, she's <sighs> alive. That's pretty, yeah. that's pretty cool. Like, she really raised awareness of people having, like, their genes tested if they yeah. have a family history of breast cancer. That's super important. But no, no, her tits are important too, I guess. <laughs> it's incredible when you, uh, like, when we sit here and we theoretically know women are objectified and then we talk about these, like, real instances where women have been reduced down to their body parts to not their body parts into like the sole function of some of those body parts well not even the sole function in the case of boobs right no no, sole function of boobs is to feed babies my dudes like (laughs) yeah and this is uh have you seen there's an instagram account so instagram um you may know they don't like seeing women's nipples, so mm. they'll ban your account if you display women's nipples. Um, and so in response to that, there is an Instagram account that is nothing but close-ups of nipples. And because they're close-ups of nipples, and they're nipple only, you can't tell if it's a woman's nipple or a man's nipple. Instagram does not ban men's <laughs> nipples. <laughs> so they are very frustrated by this account. It's still up. Oh god. Uh because they, they don't they don't know if it's a woman. There've been some um ads about like awareness of breast cancer in Australia hmm. where there'll be someone talking and saying like we can't show women's breasts and so they'll just get like pictures of like hmm. men's chests mm-hmm. like in varying degrees of like whiteness and hairiness and mm-hmm. like having different fat on it. And it's just like Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're a silly, silly <laughs> bunch of people. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine what it would have been like to exist as a woman in a world where, like, the discourse around breast cancer is framed around saving breasts mm. when you've had to have a double mastectomy. Like, that must be absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Because I bet you wouldn't be happy about it, like, in general. And to have not only just, like, a few people, but, like, a whole organisation dedicated to raising funds for breast cancer and breast cancer research and um, raising breast cancer awareness to have them kind of like rub it in your face mm. like that yeah that sucks and then on the flip side I've read some um, often quite funnily written um, accounts and that the author is trying to be funny not that I thought they were slightly bizarre um, where women who have had double mastectomies have gone swimming without tops on and been told they're not allowed to do it and it's like but I don't even have nipples anymore. Yeah. Like, why? <laughs> it does beg the question, like, what is our, and when I say our, like, societies, what is our fundamental problem with the chest area? <laughs> it's just the whole kind of region. <laughs> but, oh. Yeah. But if, if someone displays themselves as male, like, that's okay? Yeah. But if they look female... That suddenly, like, yeah. It's all based on, like, how you ascribe gender to the people who are shirtless. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds me of another, I think it was another Instagram account or a Facebook account, um, in which um, someone was transitioning and they were really pissed off about the this whole, like, dichotomy of some, for some reason, women's breasts, women's chest areas are just not okay for some reason. Um, so they've been like walking around shirtless and because they were in the middle of transitioning, um, people found it very difficult to like ascribe gender to them. Um, yeah, I'll need to dig up the story because there were some really interesting interactions and it is interesting to see how silly it is. Yeah, I was just thinking there was um a car ad that I think was one of the first things that Andrea Rejic, Andrea Pajic, Pajic, Pajic. That looks like how you say that. <laughs> um, so they're a non-binary model, I believe. I'm double checking this right now. She is a trans model, um, but before that she was sort of like known as the first androgynous supermodel, and she did this wonderful car ad where she had like sort of like hair halfway down her back is only wearing like bikini bottoms mm. walks towards the car and then like turns around and like looks quite male and has a flat chest and mm -hmm. it's all like oh this particular car is not what you always expect and it's like okay cool but also yeah. like Andre Pechuk like use that like that's really cool to see that mm. kind of like ah oh, you expected titties but then there were no titties <laughs> who is this person she <laughs> and like, I don't totally know how I feel about the use of that in advertising and how that's like good messages may be co-opted but um yeah you know she's getting money off that like I'm all for like famous yeah. trans models like you get that money yeah yeah her and Laverne Cox can like hold rad parties together yes <laughs> I love, absolutely I love Laverne Cox so much <laughs> I was fighting with people on Facebook because, you know, I have nothing better to do with my life right now, <laughs> um, about uh, the use of, like, the correct bathrooms for trans people. And okay. one of the women on this um, Facebook thread was like, I think I can tell if someone's trans or what, like, what gender they're assigned at birth, like, how they're born. And I'm like, you've seen Laverne Cox, right? Like, do you, <laughs> do you think she, sh do you think she should use the men's bathroom? She shouldn't. I want her in my bathroom. I want to hang out with her. Yeah, like, we can be a fifth. Yeah. We can, like, drunk bump into each other, like, a nightclub bathroom someday. Oh, like, just my goodness. be best friends after that. That like, is my favorite thing about a woman's bathroom. Like, especially at a party or a club, you go into the woman's bathroom and everyone is so lovely to everyone. Everyone's just like, oh my goodness, you look beautiful. How are you? Also, That's how cool is it when you go into a bathroom at a house party and then you just pee in front of each other because you just both really need to pee? Yeah, and, and so you're like powering through it, like yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> totally fine. Yeah, there's something, there's something special about the woman's bathroom. 
and and oh for the longest time like I I was really iffy about women's only spaces or women's only events mm -hmm. until I went to a few and then I realized that like the feeling that I got going to those events was the same feeling that I got going into a woman's bathroom um, mildly tipsy and just feeling safe yeah and that's that's something not to underestimate that's something to be valued yeah everyone is your friend when you're a bit drunk in a woman's bathroom yeah it's really nice <laughs> <That's> nice <laughs> did um did the person you were arguing with <laughs> rescind their, um, their comments I think they kind of tapped out of that conversation mentally by that point. Okay. Um, they sort of like never really responded when I was just like, you sure? You sure about this call? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they were responding to other people who were being sort of more like, here are my three points. Well, yeah. actually. Um, like very, very good people who are very much talking in good faith. But like, I think the argument like really sort of was an argument by that point right whereas like i'm only particularly invested in being on those threads when it's like kind of a discussion and people are co both coming Absolutely. to the table mm -hmm. with different points of view and you can be like here is my point of view here is some information that supports it now let us talk about it hmm. right back to healthcare back to healthcare <laughs> too much being happy about <laughs> being drunk in women's bathrooms um tell me I can tell you about how trans women get, like, proper PMS. It's so Tell cool. me about that. Okay. Okay. It's just like... Actually, can you first start uh, with telling me about PMS? Because I actually don't know. PMS fucks you up. Uh, what, how, <laughs> how that works. What okay. is... Your period is caused by different levels of hormones. Mm -hmm. You have, like, two hormones, estrogen and progesterone. They're at different levels. When they're at their lowest levels, your uterus, like, gives birth to your endometrial lining um, over a course of, like, five days or something, and then it all starts again. And, like, kind of in the middle of your cycle, your ovaries generally release an egg, and that allows you to maybe have a baby if you got pregnant. The egg and the sperm, so the zygote, will burrow into your endometrial lining and be like, hello, friend, I'm here. And then would, in, like, two-thirds of cases, grow into a baby... Mm -hmm. In, like, a third of cases, um, I think, like, a third of all pregnancies are meant to result in miscarriage. But a lot of those miscarriages are, like, very, very early on where, mm -hmm. like, you probably wouldn't class them as a miscarriage. You'd just be like, fuck, my period's really weird this, like, month. Like, what's <laughs> going on? So that's, like, brief overview of periods. Mm -hmm. Also quite important to remember, like, as I will probably mention at other points while we're recording, like, not everyone who gets a period is a woman. Um, and not all women get periods. And that's kind of like including uh, trans and non-binary sisters, but also like women who just don't get periods because yeah. their hormones are weird or like something else is going on. And that's all cool. Like they're living their best lives. You should too and accept them. So generally when you're kind of leading up to giving birth to your endometrial lining, which like is literally what happens. Like yeah. your uterus like <laughs> cramps to the extent like it's just like you're going into labor for a few days. Mm -hmm. Um... Often people will get, like, physical pain, so they'll have cramps, they'll get backaches. Um, they might uh, run hot, so they might get a mild fever for a few days. Uh, okay. You can have nausea to the point of vomiting, which I've had a few times. Yeah, there's all kinds of different symptoms. Generally, the, like, diagnostic criteria is focused around, like, emotional disturbances. That's what I've mostly heard. Yeah, um, like... That's silly, yeah, in my I, mind. Exactly. Like, I, I wasn't sure how legit that was. Because, um, like, if you're in pain so bad you can't walk for a few days, are you sad because of your period? Or are you sad because you're in so much pain that, like, Panadol has no effect on? Yeah. Who knows? Go on drugs. Like, <laughs> um, and sort of, like, I never really had to justify my emotional state to my GP when I was going on the marina. I was just like, I can't walk two days a month that's ridiculous, yeah. please can I not do this anymore? Mm -hmm. um, depending on your GP, some might still like focus on the diagnostic criteria of emotional disturbances as being like the most important part of like premenstrual dysphoria and shit like that. Um, things that can make your PMS worse are some people will have particular reactions to food, so like caffeine will make your cramps worse, for example. 
Um, but you could also be super tired because I also got insomnia with my periods. <laughs> so I was like, not giving up caffeine. <laughs> Guess I'll just ride this one out. <laughs> um, okay. You, yeah. So, so from my loose understanding of PMS um, before what you just said was that it was essentially crankiness, like people um, getting cranky or like em- emotional yeah, disorder. Yeah. Um, so is the more legit version like just the essentially the normal like side effects that you get which are like cramping mild fever unbelievable pain yeah because <laughs> um, that makes a lot more sense that makes a lot, a lot more sense as a as a syndrome or yeah so like happens. the diagnostic criteria like continues to rest on emotional disturbance okay I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. A lot of the GPs I've had have agreed with me on that. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. they're like, it's bad when you're emotionally disturbed, but it's worse when you can't walk. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, like, I've had quite a few friends who, for example, like, get vomiting for a few days. Mm-hmm. Like, I often just will be unable to sleep for an entire night. Like, you know, being, like, cranky or being, like, having flashes of anger or, like, having really bad mood swings, like, mm-hmm. that sucks. But I really like sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> like, and not sleeping is so much worse. And, like, vomiting a lot is yeah. so much worse. Like... And having those emotional responses are completely uh, reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm really sad when I get my period. And unless your doctor's like, why? And you're like, well, it's because I throw up for, like, three days. Like, they're never going to know. <laughs> um, there are... And, oh, one of the things that can make your... PMS particularly worse is um, endometriosis, which is when the lining of your uterus grows places where it shouldn't. Sometimes the lining of your uterus just like grows in your pelvis, just like on your kidneys, on your small intestine, like oh, just, just grows there. Um, <laughs> like there's no real way to treat it except like you can have a laparoscopy, which is like they cut into you and they then burn it off, oh, wow. um, and it can regrow. If you do that. And then more Great. of it might regrow, so... <laughs> Whatever, I guess. Okay. <laughs> um, I've dealt with... So I had suspected endometriosis. It was never confirmed. Um, I had a ultrasound that didn't see anything. But the only way to, like, again, truly confirm it is with laparoscopy, which I didn't want. Yeah. Like, I didn't want to have surgery just because, like, I had real bad cramps. Like... <laughs> and also the fact that it'll come back yeah even after surgery that's yeah um not cool and so i have in australia um got a marina which is an intrauterine device which means i've had it for two years and i've had maybe like two periods and they were light and i didn't notice they were coming and that was really nice Mm. it meant i like had to hand watch a few pairs of underwear but like i'll take it (laughs) um because i did this in australia like it's sort of if your GP signs off on it, like, it's at least partly publicly funded. Um, so I pay something like $120 for no periods of five years. What's up? Um, yes. In New Zealand, unless you have a confirmed diagnosis of endometriosis, you have to self-fund, and that can be anywhere up to $500. Um, which sucks. Like, if you're thinking about it and you really, like, have no ability to get those funds, I would very much consider getting a sympathetic GP who will sign off on you having endo. Um, or some other kind of, like, menstrual syndrome. Um, or just, like, figure out what's up with your periods and get it fixed. Because for some people, like, it's genuinely just, like, a small hormonal imbalance. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they, like, avoid particular foods leading up to it, their symptoms can get a lot better. Um, when I was in high school, uh, my mum took me to see a naturopath. A which, what? A naturopath. What is that? Uh, so they're kind of, like herbalists oh but they also sell you homeopathy stuff but i think she like noticed how uh cynical my mom was and she only gave me like herbalist stuff and like i think okay when it comes to like herbalism and naturopathy naturopathy (laughs) um like i understand it to an extent like a lot Mm -hmm. of our treatments come from trees and shit like aspirin was originally from the bark of the wormwood tree or whatever yeah I think it's safer when you get it in actual pills because the dose can be controlled. There's a lot of evidence for things like St. John's wort being cut with grass. Like, it is like street cocaine. 
it is probably cut with something that like won't do the thing you want it to do. Mm. Like, do not buy drugs from a dealer you don't trust. And in my case, the dealer I do not trust is herbs. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. I also had um experience with um a what are they nat, nat- naturopath natrop. Okay, so um when I was young, my and we first came over here. My parents didn't speak much English. Um, so they didn't know much about the healthcare system and the person closest to a doctor that they did know who spoke Mandarin was, um, a traditional Chinese medicine practitioner. Uh, I still don't know how I feel about Chinese medicine. There's some stuff that obviously seems to work and there's some stuff that obviously seems to not work, but it was a kind of very weird experience where, um, I had, like, I'm not sure if I had pneumonia, but I had really thick mucus coughing for about six months um, to a year when I was little. And my father took me to the traditional Chinese medicine guy, and we got these, like, tiny little black balls that were incredibly bitter. I had no idea what they were, but I had to eat um, a tablespoon every single day. And to this day, I'm, I I have no idea what I ate. <laughs> okay, did it make you better? No. Oh, no. no. <laughs> it's even worse. I know. I know. So I had a really bad um bad like cold when I was in Holland once when I was little, and so they gave me some of their cough medicine. And like one of the Dutch ways of thinking is the worse it tastes, the more likely it is to make you better. Yeah. So yeah. I've had like a similar like awful experience with medicine, where it's like, oh, why did you give them? My parents ended up putting like a little piece of Toblerone in the bottom of like the cough medicine, so oh, that I would drink it because then I'd drink it and then I get the Toblerone. Yeah. Um, the black stuff I took was uh, it was solid. So it wasn't liquid, and um, you couldn't dissolve it in anything. And and you couldn't, like, swallow it. You, you had to, like, chew it. Couldn't swallow it either. So what my dad ended up doing, because it tasted so horrible, was he'd put it in um, a mortar and pestle, grind it up into a fine powder, and then mix honey all through it. Mm. It still tasted disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> but I could get it down. Oh... I suddenly had the thing where, like, I was complaining about the medicine I had to drink in Holland, and my yeah. dad went, oh, it's not that bad. It took a swig, and then was like... <laughs> why? Why do you? Why do you give this to children? Because <laughs> like in New what Zealand, have we, done? we fill like all our children's medicine with like sugar, and we yeah. give them like gummy vitamin C candies. Oh, like so good. Oh, God, kids these days—they're oh, so lucky. <laughs> they have it so good. Back in my day, I had to eat black tar. Yeah, <laughs> but um, sure. we're not going to the naturopath. Basically because I was, like, written off by, like, the healthcare system. So we hadn't been able to get an appointment with my GP. And, like, I was quite sick. Like, I was sleeping all the time. I was, like, not just doing well. And I, what, the big thing was, like, I was having terrible PMS. Like, mm-hmm. that was kind of the first time I had those cramps so bad I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. And we went to the doctor and she was like, sounds like you have depression. And it's like, but I can't walk, though. <laughs> and she's like, depression? He's like... Six visits to a, like, government-sponsored psychiatrist, have fun, by. They can't talk away in the cramps. <laughs> yeah, right? Um, and whether or not that is a commentary on how women's pain is often presumed to be psychosomatic, we can leave for another day. But uh, as a response to that, my mum took me to a naturopath who was like, the problem is that doctors treat sickness, but we as naturopaths promote wellness. <laughs> um, which, like... That's nice, I guess. I mean, it's a tacky catchphrase, but, like, I kind of understand more where they're coming from now, because I think, Mm -hmm. like, for a lot of people, like, you have, like, these mild, like, niggling issues in your life, and probably a lot of them could be solved by, like, eating better, Mm. exercising more, taking just, like, objectively better care of yourself, and to an extent, like, naturopaths and generally alternative practitioners of, like, stuff that isn't medicine yet because it hasn't been actually peer-reviewed and found to work. Um, like, they will often tell you stuff like that. Like, you go get a Reiki massage, but they don't even touch you, and then they'll be like... But it's like, it's mindfulness techniques. Yeah. Like, you go get a Reiki massage, and you feel like you're doing something good for yourself, and you have some time to yourself where you're not stressed, and then you feel better, because you mm. had a little lie-down, and someone, like, waved their hands over you. <laughs> like, that's the kind of effect it has. And, like, with the naturopath we went to, she gave me, like, vitamin supplements. So she gave me vitamin B6, and she, like, gave me some B-complex vitamins, and was also just, like, 
have you considered eating better? And I was like, drinking more water. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Whatever, lady. You're not my mum. Um, and she was like, eating better on like the hardcore end, where she was like, you should give up chocolate. And also white bread. Because it's like, it's too sweet. And we left. And my mum sort of turned to me in the car and she was like, look, you know, try... And she gave me magnesium supplements as well. She's like, you know, my mum was like, try taking the supplements, like, see if they work, and if they don't, like, whatever. And then there was, like, a bit of a silence in the car, and then mum was like, I can't believe she told you not to eat chocolate. It seems like that would only make you more miserable when you've got cramps. <laughs> and I was like, oh, so you went on board with all of that diet stuff? And I was like, no, I'm going to go buy you chocolate now. <laughs> like, if your problem is bad PMS, you don't solve that by taking chocolate away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the weirdest thing when, like, we look at how society dismisses a lot of um, women's very real pain and health issues as like psychosomatic. The weird thing I find about that when you were just talking about that was um, remembering uh, one year, I remember it was in 2010, I had the worst cramps ever, um, so bad that I couldn't function, uh, which is not something I'd ever imagined um and i had to i had to literally be like i had a headache <laughs> to the people around me because I, I was i was working at the time um go back to my room and literally curl up in a ball i couldn't get to sleep because it was so painful um and throughout that entire process i was i was telling myself like i wasn't taking myself seriously like mm. i wasn't taking my own pain seriously i wasn't thinking maybe I should see someone, maybe I should tell someone. I was just thinking, this will go away soon. Like, I'm overreacting. It's fine. It's fine. But it wasn't fine. I was sort of touched on this before, because you have, like, quite a high requirement of, like, illness before you go to the doctor, right? Yeah. yeah. So, like, I will go and see my doctor for checkups, like, partly because I have to, because of the medication I'm on. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's really cool, because like, I'll check in and be like, hey, this has gone on, like, what's up with that? Mm -hmm. um, but I have this really high requirement for I'll go to the hospital for anything. Yeah. Like, sort of dangerously high, some might say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I had an ovarian cyst recently, uh, and it was six centimetres, which is about the size of a billiard ball, for reference. Um, and it ruptured inside of me. And when it ruptured, I did not know that that, was what was happening um so i sort of found all this out when i went to the hospital eventually but it ruptured and where the pain had previously been on my left side it moved to my lower right abdomen and so i was convinced my appendix had burst and i was dying mm. but i looked at my watch and i was on my way into work and i was like well look if my appendix has burst i've got 12 hours before it's like irrefutable <laughs> definitely gonna die <laughs> i've been working to like set up for this experiment like all week and <clears throat> it's gonna take a really long time for me to repeat it so, experiment takes three hours. Yeah. So I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to go to the hospital. <laughs> um, and, like, in my defense, I do work in a children's hospital. So, like, there yeah. are doctors around. So, yeah. like, had I just, like, passed out somewhere, <laughs> like, I would have been okay. Like, it wasn't, you know, miles away to the hospital. But then, like, I eventually got to the hospital, and I was checking in with a nurse, and he asked me, like, where my pain was on a scale from 0 to 10, and we should talk about pain scales after I finish the story, because mm -hmm. it's a good story. Um, <laughs> and I was like, an 8. And he's like, oh, okay. I was like, no, no. I would not be here if it wasn't an 8, and the mm -hmm. only reason that I am standing up right now is, like, extreme willpower. Like, I am very close to sitting on the floor and crying, my dude. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of took me a little bit more seriously, but I had to just be like, no, I don't come to the hospital unless I feel like I'm dying. That's yeah. <laughs> what the emergency room is for. It's for emergencies. Yeah, yeah. I get the I get the same I get the same thing as well. And I, I do wonder if if it is a gender pattern. Um, but I have no way of knowing. Yeah, or we have our own experiences. Yeah. Tell me about the pain scale. Okay. So the pain scale is not very good. No. <laughs> what you need to do and I think, like, I definitely found this because I have had really bad cramps, like, pretty mm. much, like, all the time I've been menstruating. So my pain scale is a little bit warped. Mm. I think also because, like, I self-harmed for, like, eight years. Like, it breaks your pain scale. What you need to do is think about where your pain is on your pain scale and then translate it into, like, what someone who hasn't, like, 
lived your life would feel. Mm-hmm. So particularly for sufferers of chronic pain, like I think this is very, very good because you can just be like, oh no, it's fine. Like everyone just like has to stop walking after a hundred meters. Like it's all good. So like my like ovarian cyst rupturing pain was probably like pretty bad cramps. And like if I was like putting that on the pain scale of like pain I have felt was the assumption like I haven't felt a ten yet. Mm. I'd probably rate it like a six. Mm-hmm. When I went to the hospital, I said an eight because, like, I'm pretty sure on a scale of, like, real humans, that would have been an eight. (laughs) Because, like, and it's partly because, like, I was about to just sit on the floor and cry because I was in so much pain. It's like, that seems like it should be an eight on a theoretical scale that I don't super understand. Um, Something else that my clinician friends have told me is very useful is comparing it to other pain that you've had. Okay. Or comparing it to, like a feeling so like if you've got like a particular stabbing pain Mm. in your abdomen you can be like it's a strong stabbing pain like legitimately feels like i'm being stabbed i may be dying like because that like gives the context it gives a type of pain because that like is particularly important as well and then it's just like it tells the doctor or the nurse or whoever's attending to you like how important that pain is to you Mm -hmm. so if you're like it's quite bad but like i felt worse then they know that like you're okay, but, like, you need an eye on. Whereas if you're, like, I feel like I'm straight up dying, please help me. Mm. Like, okay, this person is, like, they need assistance in some way. Interesting. I would really like, uh, after this, um, uh, have a look to see if there's any studies on how women, maybe, if there's any gender disparity in um, how people rate their own pain. Mm, there are some studies, I think. I just yeah. don't know them off the top of my head. Um, <coughs> briefly, on pain scale, uh, Ellie Brosh from Hyperbole and a Half, and we'll yeah. chuck a link in the show notes, uh, redid very... a very good pain scale yeah. with like her like little self-insert oh, character <laughs> being like different levels of in pain. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot better than like the generic card that people use. It's oh, very fantastic. We were going to talk about trans women getting PMS, and then we got sidetracked. Oh, yes. Yeah, so... We can touch on that now. Yes. And then move on. Um, Sorry, we got sidetracked. It happens. (laughs) It's all very interesting, so you can deal with it. Um, Something that is absolutely fascinating is that trans women start to develop symptoms of PMS. Um, So that could be the low abdominal cramping. That could be... And, like, the reason it's surviving is typically people who are designated male at birth and so become trans women um, don't have... A uterus a lot of the time and so the fact that they're getting cramps like in the lower abdominal region the fact that they're having bloating and like slight mm. fevers and cravings and mood swings like is just absolutely fascinating and certainly not enough um, research has been done on that and like mm. the sort of article that we're going to link in the show notes covers most of the more recent research but it's really like we don't super know why it happens and generally it's like, is it something to do with hormones? Probably. Yeah. I was about to ask. That's, that's, <laughs> but that's, the that's all we know. Like, that's the end of it. Like, <laughs> it seems unlikely it would be due to anything else. Yeah. Um, but, like, and for trans women who experience PMS symptoms, they often, like, won't report it and won't really talk about it because mm-hmm. they think it's, like, not super legitimate like they're just like i don't really know what's happening to me this can't be a period like mm-hmm. it seems like pms but it's not of course um and yeah. it turns out trans women actually like get pms symptoms like <laughs> that's incredibly fascinating hormones in general just like it's so <coughs> cool it's so cool <laughs> they're like um little stop go signs at different parts yeah. of your body yeah no, um, I found out only a few weeks ago, because sometimes I get acne, mm. like really, really bad cystic acne uh, for no known reason, and then it goes away again, and it comes back again. And then I read up the other day that um, you'll get acne around like your jaw area right before your period, and I noticed it was happening right before my period, and it was... Yes. I mean, it was not cool that I was getting acne, but it was so cool to see the effect of just hormone change. Because I'm on the pill, so I know yeah, yeah. exactly when the hormones go down. Yeah, yeah. And exactly on the day that I um, stopped taking the active pill, I started feeling the little bumps in my face. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's so cool. That's so cool. I mean, 
fuck acne, but awesome that, like, science, it works, essentially. Oh, man, that's amazing. Yeah. The human body is a wonderful thing. I'm not going to tell you your PMS is a gift, anyone listening (laughs) or Serena. It's horrible and it sucks, but man. It is fascinating. Just the fact that we have, like, a month-long cycle, I find, like, so cool. Because, like, when you think about stuff like circadian rhythms, it's like the human body and, like, most animals have a cycle of, like, day and night. Mm -hmm. And, like, the fact that we have, firstly, a month-long cycle. Secondly, like, menstrual, like, menstruating, which, so most mammals will go into estrus, which is, like, going into heat. Mm -hmm. So, like, when all the dogs want to fuck, they're in heat. Um, I think most primates, like, they'll go into estrus. They won't menstruate. Because it's messy and it sucks. Yeah. But for us, like, being able to have a baby, like, anytime, anywhere, let's go baby time, it's really useful for us. But it's, like, if we just had an endometrial lining all the time, it'd go bad. Like, you know when you have, like, your last year period comes out and it's like, this is Brown. disgusting. Yeah. It's like something died in my uterus and, like, the, like, yeah. decaying Stimble. bits are leaking yeah. out. Yeah. Um, like, if we just had an endometrial lining all the time, like, it would end up like that. Like, it wouldn't be any good for a zygote to implant in. Mm. So we menstruate. Rather than just, like, going into heat all the time. That's so cool. Like, oh, yes. Do you know if there's any um, reasoning behind the whole one month, around about one month cycle? No idea. Oh, so mysterious. (laughs) I mean, like, it's probably no one. (laughs) More things for us to learn. Yeah. We can do follow-ups. That's so cool. Um, We should probably talk about... uh, Hysteria and other women's diseases. Women's diseases in large, yeah, inverted quotation commas. marks. Yeah. <laughs> so hysteria was the word that the Greeks used when they thought that your uterus was going for a trek around your body. So like, when women were acting really weird or not listening to their father's authority, for example. Um, it was just the uterus was off in your brain, like fucking it up. It's like your uterus went for a walk, got to your brain. Now your brain's no good. Because the uterus is there as well. Like, That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it would be quite cool to be able to just be like, oh, I can't do any work today. Uterus is by my brain. <laughs> Went for a walk. Oh, what can we do about it? Hysteria, am I right? Um, and so, like, that's sort of the original, like, quote-unquote women's disease. And that, like, hysteria was just blamed for, like, a lot of things that went wrong for women. Um, things like... So women have a history of being more diagnosed with mental illness, so depression, anxiety particularly, um, and this is often blamed for their symptoms. So if you are a woman, if you identify as female and you go into a doctor and you're like, hey, here's my collection of symptoms, like, you are slightly Mm -hmm. more likely to be told that it's probably psychosomatic. This was the case with a lot of people with things like fibromyalgia, um, which is a disease that I don't know a whole lot about, but I do know a lot of people who experience fibro, and it sounds like it sucks, mm-hmm. um, and chronic fatigue. So for a very long time, it was like, it's, it's your brain. When we get this, it's, it's in your brain. It's probably your uterus. Like Emotions. Yeah. <laughs> a woman's thing. <laughs> it seems like maybe you're not doing enough sewing. <laughs> If you stayed in the kitchen, you might be happier. <laughs> and then your fibre would go away. And it already makes it so it's really painful to walk. So this all just works out. Like, Isn't sexism magical? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, and so, like, these are now more recognised as, like, real diseases. I think with chronic fatigue, it's still pretty hit or miss, depending on your doctor. Okay. If they recognise chronic fatigue as being, like, a real disease or not. Um, it's also known as... Myalgic um, encephalomyelitis. So, that's a general other name it's known as. I cannot pronounce that consistently, so they call it chronic fatigue. Um... Yeah, from what I've heard, it's still pretty head on this as to whether you get a doctor that actually believes that chronic fatigue syndrome exists. Um, however, it is real. Like, there's a large body of evidence that supports it as being an actual disease that isn't just brains and uteruses and brainy uteruses and uteruses on the brain. Um, because men get it too. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's actual, like, and there's a, 
quite a be decent amount of research that's going into not only looking for treatments but also looking for biochemical tests which could be used to confirm or tell someone that we should be looking in another corner for whatever's going wrong with them. And fibromyalgia is in the same place, so often one might get misdiagnosed as the other. They generally both cause like extreme tiredness, like joint pains, muscle pains, like just very easy fatiguing. Um, and they're quite hard to live with. And so almost makes it particularly shitty that for a very long time we were like, it's just this thing that happens to women. Sometimes they just need to sleep all the time. Um, and so that's sort of like the most recent crop of disorders that we were like, I mean, I guess it's real. Uh, the one that's currently my favorite and look, just only Google this if you are sure that you want to. I, Serena can attest that before this episode, I was just checking up some details of this particular disease and I kept going, ah, whenever I open things. I still don't know what it is. <laughs> um, so it's called Magellan's. Mm-hmm. And like, from what I've read, I'm inclined to believe that Magellan's is probably one of the diseases that like, some of the symptoms are psychosomatic. Some of it is actually like a disease, but it's probably like an already defined disease rather than Magellan's. Okay. Um, Magellan's is sort of defined, it generally affects like sort of middle-aged white women, um, there's been a lot of like reporting of it in America, uh, Joni Mitchell is someone who um, says that she has Magellan's, like I don't want to, it's hard when you're talking about like a disease that might not be a disease, like right, yeah. it's generally described by doctors as like delusional parasitosis, and so the key factor of Magellan's is that you believe that you have something beneath your skin, you oh. pick at your skin, um, and often you will find like fibers coming out of your skin. So blue or white and like fibers that don't look like anything that you've been wearing or any colors you have, and you will pull these out of your skin and sometimes they can like be pulled for quite a while. And it is horrifying to read about. Wow, that sounds like some kind of Twilight Zone, like, internet creepypasta. Oh, it's fucked up. I hate Magellan so much, but I read about it for this episode. Oh my god. So, (laughs) so it's a, it's a case in which you believe there is something under your skin, or like a parasite within yourself. So there's limited... Um, evidence from studies that have gone into it. Mm-hmm. So there was a big study done by the CDC where they said that the fibres that were coming out of people's skin um, looked like cellulose, looked like they come from cotton. They looked very natural. Mm-hmm. The people who pull these fibres out of their skin say they're, the colours don't match anything they wear, they don't look like they came from like any natural thing, any man-made mm-hmm. object, anything that's around them. The idea that you may have some kind of parasite disease or like some form of scabies that involves like weird hard fibers growing in your skin like the worst kind of ingrown hair you can imagine mm. is singularly horrifying yeah um oh. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> it's like it's it's the worst uh and so generally the kind of like The symptoms that people will present with beyond that is, like, they'll have open, weeping sores, like, they'll often be... These will be, like, middle-aged white women who have, like, huge sores on their arms, their legs, and their back. Um, Do these fibres come in naturally, or are they cutting into themselves? uh, So sometimes they'll be cutting into themselves to, like, try and get them out. Mm -hmm. Um, Generally, it will start because you'll feel an itching. Mm-hmm. And, like, that will be, like, the beginning of more challenge, yeah. which means for the next, like, five hours, I'm going to be very paranoid every time my skin itches. So, <laughs> yay! <laughs> huh. I wonder if that's, like, a maybe a combination between something that might be schematic, which is, like, the whole, you know, like, when you itch something, mm. it itches more, and it itches yeah, yeah. more, and, like, the skin gets harder. Mm. So it might be a combination of that and something else entirely that's producing these fibers because i do know that i definitely get a thing where like if there's any like skin texture that doesn't feel quite right um i will try and cut it out um which sounds dramatic that's horrifying um continue (laughs) but like 
Like, I've, I've got a few scars from... And I've stopped doing this now, because I know that, like, the more I, I cut into my skin, I used to, like, um, crush garlic and, like, put it into the... It was fucked up. I yeah, used it to different fine. things. Um, Look, I literally have said earlier in this episode that, like, I self-tom for eight years, so, like, yeah. there is no tea, no shade here. <laughs> yeah, this... this... This wasn't trying to... It, it was, wasn't trying to, but, like, you yeah, were trying yeah, to fix yourself. Yeah, I was trying to fix something, um, and then I, you know, quickly realised that the more I was trying to do this, the harder the skin became, the weirder the texture of the skin became, and I would, like, try and dig in more. Yeah, real bad. Um, but it... So I can definitely relate to, like, the feeling that something is wrong with your body and you have to go and, like, fix it yourself. Yeah. Never seen weird fibres, so... Yeah. So Maybe like, it's like an overlap of people who get this compulsion and people who actually have something. Yeah, like, and I think um, a lot of people who have Morgellons, like, have been so rejected by mainstream healthcare that they will feel like they have to, like, do alternative things and start up these, like, secret mm. groups and be like, we can't trust anyone because, oh, like, no. they don't believe this is a real disease. Oh, no. And, like... That's probably because they've been in pain for so long. Mm. And, like, I fully sympathize with that. Like, it sucks when, like, mainstream medicine can't do anything for your pain and also doesn't think your pain is a real disease. Yeah. And, like, I think that's part of the problem of, like, looking at disease and saying, this thing isn't real. Like, it's fine to do that now with hysteria, but to do it with something like Morgellons is to alienate people who are quite genuinely suffering. Mm. I wonder if that makes the whole... Um hypochondriac kind of feeling worse like it would exacerbate that if you if you don't think medical professionals believe your symptoms the next time you see a symptom you're going to be like this is definitely real rather than saying i should go see a medical professional first to ask if you know it's something i should be concerned about yeah quite probably now you're itching (laughs) (laughs) oh god okay well, it's like, I really like doing things like plucking and growing hairs. Like, I get a lot of yeah, satisfaction yeah. out of that. Yeah. Or even just, like, plucking hairs. It's like, yeah, be free, my child. Yeah, I do that a lot, too. But, yeah, Morgellons is, like... Yeah, I'm very serious that, like, only Google this if you can handle it. Like... No, I don't think I will Google this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Serena heard me, like, yelling before, being like, I hate Morgellons. It's the worst. <laughs> Um, and certainly, like, I don't believe there's also enough evidence to say definitively mm. that Morgellons does or doesn't exist. I think, like, a really good test would be to get people who are sufferers of Morgellons and keep them in a very controlled environment mm-hmm. to see what they're being exposed to that might be generating these fibres or, like, causing a kind of reaction that will generate these fibres. Mm. Um, in some cases of delusional parasitosis, and this is particularly horrifying to read, um, the fibres that, like, people collected and provided to um, scientists were bits of nerve because they were so wanted the itching to stop that they like picked and cut down to the bone oh my god oh my god oh it makes me think about um, the placebo effect Mm. and how the placebo effect is a thing that can like fix a lot of ailments just I don't know. I don't know. How. I guess no one knows. Um, so I wonder if this is along the same vein of you believe there's something wrong. The nocebo effect. Although that's more about pain. Yeah? Yeah. So um, the nocebo effect is like if someone tells you that something's going to be painful or acts like it's going to be painful. So like they did a um, test with like dentists mm-hmm. where someone's like getting a routine filling change or whatever and... They told either the patients and the dentists or only the dentists that mm-hmm. the patient was using, like, a trial um, anesthetic that was, like, thought to be slightly less effective but have fewer side effects or they were on the normal anesthetic. Mm-hmm. When the doctors were told that the patient was on, like, the trial anesthetic, like, the patient would report feeling more pain. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, like, the nocebo effect. Because oh. yeah. um, the word for pain receptors is nociceptors. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, like, don't know really anything about this, but I, from the little knowledge that I do have of the placebo effect, it's quite stunning. So, yeah, I, I do wonder if 
I mean, this is me like speculating wildly. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> no science. There was no. There was no science in the following statement. But I wonder if that it's uh, down a similar vein. Like if you truly believe that there is something under your skin does your I don't know like do the actions that you do to your skin make it create potentially and also there's like confirmation bias mm. like if you pick it like you know six different places on your skin and one of them has like collected a fiber from somewhere or yeah. like you know you got a um, prickle before and like your skin was just kind of like this prickle is mine <laughs> um, like then you'll be like my skin is growing prickles like yeah. mm. Humans are weird and fascinating things. <laughs> Alright, on that horrifying note, um, I'd like to thank you for listening to Things of Interest. I've been Sophia France. I'm Serena Ching. <laughs> um, remember that we have Twitter at Casting Interest, we have Facebook at Things of Interest, and an email, which is castinginterest at gmail.com. You can feel free to email us with questions, requests, um, or send us in a voice memo and we will intercut you into the episode like we did with Michelle. Yeah. Do not email us more things about Morgellons. Yeah, Please. do not send us anything about Morgellons. We will block <laughs> you. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, maybe. I mean, if you enjoy, like, our podcast. If you were intrigued by this episode <laughs> and moderately horrified. As we were. Um, <laughs> Please do give us some stars on the iTunes or on uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review if you can. We'd love to know what you enjoy hearing about, what you don't like hearing about. And as always, share us with a friend. Share us with someone else who will be equally delightfully horrified yeah. <laughs> and intrigued. We don't do any kind of advertising, so really the only way that people find out about us is if you tell them. Introduce a friend to the horrors of Morgellons. <laughs> <laughs> Stay interesting. See you next time.